Welcome to Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success, hosted by John Biggs. Every week, we talk to an amazing person about a time they failed and what they learned. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Welcome back to Keep Going, a podcast about success and failure. Uh, I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Jeanette Kahiti. She's a self-described multi-potentialite. I've known you, Jeanette, for Over decades, decades yeah. now, which seems crazy. I know. But uh, but uh, but I think you've been doing you've been doing figure skating. You've been doing startups. You've been doing all kinds of amazing stuff. So why don't you? kind of define a multi-potentialite for us and then let's talk about uh one of your multi-potentialite Shh. failures i suppose yeah well so i view multi-potentialites as the generalist in life mm-hmm. uh where they're quick to learn things they're multi-talented it's really hard to put them in a box they don't just do one thing and um they're almost like a chameleon in, in some cases especially in the workforce uh but um, it's kind of like your modern Renaissance man or woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with how I was raised. Both of my parents were political refugees from a communist country known as Cuba. And in communist countries, you are very well-rounded and very well-educated across multiple subjects, music, uh, dance, uh, science, arts, math. And so with that mindset is how I was raised. So I never actually knew anything different. Like I didn't know I was supposed to pick a lane. It was just kind of like explore as many passions and talents as I could because I was a now American and I could, you know, Mm -hmm. didn't have to pick a lane. So, um, so I think that mindset has really helped me a lot in my career because I'm able to really see big picture and multiple disciplines and functions at one time and then really laser in and focus on execution. And I think that that kind of ability has been both a gift and a curse. It's a gift for people who see the vision. It's a curse for people who have no idea what to do with people like me. So Yeah, exactly. And- I think like we had a we had a episode on a big basically being a generalist a few episodes ago. And I think that, I think that's completely accurate. The idea that, that, and I I would consider myself a generalist. I can do all kinds of stuff. If you want me to code something for you, I'll code it for you. If you want me to write something for you, I'll write it for you. Uh, But we're not going to sit there and, I don't know, write a billing system from scratch for, I don't know, a telecom operator. I was able to do it for a brief period, but I hated it. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so I guess it sucks to be us. And any other generalists <laughs> out there, get on get on the podcast. So we could talk about your uh, your generalism uh, generalism failures. Uh, so why don't you tell us about what you what you worked on and uh, and how it shook out? Sure. So I had graduated from Harvard in 2010, and I started you know blogging my ideas. And one of my classmates, Cuba, who we both know. Um, at Kellogg, um, he was working on this idea and concept called Blurt with uh, Nikhil Sethi, who sold his company Adaptly to Accenture. Eventually, he made a good bet to walk away from Blurt. Um, but at the time, they were working on this postcard idea. And Nick, uh, who was the other co-founder of the original Blurt, 
um, had this model for self-service advertising at the time, which, you know, thinking back to the date was 2010, very forward thinking. Mm -hmm. And he ended up founding a a successful advertising uh, model that, you know, Accenture acquired. Um, And so I had said that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Nick went off to go do Adaply. Kubo was left. He was working at McKinsey. And he was like, hey, I, you know, we weren't really close at Kellogg, but I think you're really smart. And I have this idea and I don't have anybody to run it. Are you interested in it? So in a way, I kind of fell into Blurt. And then, you know, the first thing I had to do was a financial transaction, which was wipe the um, cap table clean Mm because there was no way I was going to be able to raise money with the way they had structured the company. They had, you know, they did it while they were at Northwestern. It was an Illinois LLC. I mean, it was a total disaster. It was like not what you would do in a startup. So, you know, I had to negotiate with Nick to let go of Blur. I had to negotiate with the team in Poland who was developing Blur and Cuba to restructure the cap table so that we could actually raise funds. And I think that's kind of where you came in, where we originally were starting with this like kind of postcard idea where you can create a digital postcard and then it would send a ma- it would mail it to you with an ad imprinted at the bottom. And so we were creating a marketplace really for sending, being able to send eventually free postcards from around the world with a personalized ad at the bottom that mm-hmm. was targeted to the person based on their uh, Facebook graph. Okay. So back then, Facebook allowed you to use the graph and mm-hmm. be able to target. Now you can't do that, obviously. So this is where I think we pitched you in Brooklyn, and you introduced us to Keith Tier, And then that's when we ended up getting into the inc- incubator that Keith Tier had started called Archimedes. And got our first seed round. And then the idea evolved from there. Um, you know, it, 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 uh, it became basically the first meme creation app in the market. So we yeah. were 10 years ahead of our time. And I would say, you know, in terms of the quality of the app, obviously we were like uh, Mashable's top six apps to download. We we're on TechCrunch multiple times. Um, you know, people like, for example, Ben Ha from Cheeseburger, told reached out to me and was like blurt is beautiful (laughs) you know so i was like that was like the best compliment because i had looked up to him with what he had done for cheeseburger and memes forever you know for quite some time i mean i consider him one of the godfathers and um i even had the founder of jib jab um reach out to me which i thought was cool because jib jab you know all their kind of meme postcards go viral to tell me he admired me and and what I was doing. So I had a lot of fans, but I would say that doesn't necessarily lead to success. And Mm -hmm. especially when you're, you time the market too early. Okay. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's interesting. So what, so how did it, how did it check out? How did it break down? I guess. Well, so while I was trying to raise money, I mean, there's the component in my head. I like, I do have an MBA, so I'm very practical and I was also an investment maker. So money, like I think in terms of finance, financials, which is another, I guess, kind of gift in the sense that I'm not a generalist that doesn't understand business models. Like I actually do. And so I, I had a lot of tension, especially raising money in the Valley at the time where vision was what they were looking for. And I was trying to be more practical and try to find a business model that could stick, mm-hmm. sustain, grow, generate revenue. 
And what ended up happening is I was raising money. I, I would have VCs occasionally say things to me, well, is this a lifestyle business? Which I think women, especially female entrepreneurs, hear that often. Um, and then in hindsight, I'm like, what's wrong with the lifestyle business? Like, if you want to pay me $10 million a year to run a really nice little business and I don't have to take venture capital money, yeah. I'm fine with that, honestly. Well, that, was, like, that was the ultimate insult back then, right? That was yeah. the... That was like the, the insult. Like, oh, you want a lifestyle business? Where's my 100x return on, on <laughs> Clinkle or whatever? Exactly. So I just kind of was like, you know, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to take this personally. But we did try to pivot so many times and try to find a business model. And that's when we met Mike Arrington, who was like, this is genius. Like, <laughs> he's like, I want this, you know? And, um, and I, I think his vision for where he wanted to take the company, the vision that we had for where we wanted to take the company was just not compatible. And um, so the, the deal, and it was also kind of a weird time in the market when Instagram had launched and had like 1 million users like overnight. So Blurt was kind of competing with like the sort of images and using images to express yourself. And, you know, even I think TechCrunch called it like the app for clever people. And um, when we were getting covered by TechCrunch, I remember the writer basically saying, wow, it's like really hard to force a blurt. And I was like, actually, yes, it's very hard to force a blurt. And then I realized at that moment, I was like, this may be a little too clever. Like, mm-hmm. it may be only for people who have like one percentile IQ, <laughs> to be honest. Because back then, nobody knew what a meme was. I mean, if you talk to Ben, he had a whole team of writers. Some cards had a whole team of writers. So all these memes that we were seeing just kind of hit, you know, Jib Jab had a creative team. No, None of those people who were creating memes at the time were like had the audacity to let some random guy at a bar create a meme, you know? And so what ended up happening was um, I had an intern at the time who was excellent at writing memes. She was a lot younger than me, (laughs) obviously. So she was awesome. And so I would have her just like, just turn memes, you know, to try to get good memes out there to show people like what a good meme was, but it was still kind of an uphill battle. So Hmm. I think, I made a mistake there in that, like, I think sometimes founders, they are so passionate about an idea and they can see the idea, but they don't, when you kind of see a customer using your product, if there's any kind of friction or you see them struggling, take that as your sign that something is wrong. Like no amount of education, no amount of you onboarding them, no amount of you like waiting for this to become a thing is going to actually get you over the hurdle. Mm-hmm. of that initial it's really hard for me to force a blur and it's like oop that should have been like the sign right there like this has to change immediately immediately and i ended up just doubling down and being like no this is the future this is the future this is how people are going to communicate well yes i was right about that too but there's no way to sustain a company for 10 years waiting for everyone else to catch up like that's just not possible so you mm-hmm. need to be realistic about what you can execute today how people are using the product today that are go- that's going to drive growth. And then slowly you get to your vision, which is everyone communicates in the meme, which is how it works today. Okay. So, so you guys, well, it, 
But we could also argue you were just way too early to have people understand how how memes worked. I mean, yeah, 2010 even was sort of early meme days. It yes. was like nobody knew nobody knew what. I mean, they didn't even know how to pronounce it at that point. Yeah, I know. True. Yeah. So, what would you have done differently? You know, I would have. I will. I think now people create based off ideas. And I even see corporations do this and they don't invest in the customer research side of things or the market research. And so I think any idea that I have today, no matter how amazing and how excited I am about it, the first thing I do is my own, my own research, first and secondary research. I look for trends that I think support what it is that I'm trying to say and that the that's in, within the line of sight within the next year or two, not BS Gartner hype curve stuff, which is mostly like kind of a joke. Um, so I'm like, what is actually happening? Like, what are companies actually doing and seeing? And then the other is talking to the customer. And, you know, back in the day, we were really big also into the lean startup methodology, which I kind of made fun of because I was like, this is just like regular kind of operations 101. But I do think Eric was very smart in his approach where he really focused almost the entire book on the customer development piece. Like, like, how do you interview? How do you leave the room? Like, leave the room and go see your product in the wild. Like, mm -hmm. test the prototype. Learn from that. Iterate. And I think startups have a hard time doing that because they have limited budgets. They may not value well, they also that have limited. Process. They also have limited social skills as well, if you want to think about it that way. I mean, the, the, <laughs> yeah. some, of the, some of the biggest startups are founded by people who don't have the social skills to like leave the room, which is yeah, super dangerous. I mean, even, even, even like an introvert would be like have trouble like going down the street and pick, asking people what they think of this thing. Yes. Uh, but if you have like somebody who's really good at coding, they're probably not good at asking people on the street how things work, which is why you kind of need the ha hacker, the hustler, and the uh, hipster. Yeah. And that's true. That's so true. I mean, you know, I just left a product development firm and within the product development firm, like depending on the product or the, the problem I was trying to solve, I had certain people in the, in the organization that I would go to and ask questions to like whether they were an engineer or, you know, but the ones that I got along with the best, like in terms of mindset of like, Hey, how would you solve this problem? Were the ones who were entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So like, because they understand the pain point that I'm trying to solve, which is like, is this really what the, like, is this the thing that is going to deliver growth? Like, are, is this the set of features that is really going to like make this successful? Or are we just building a basically wish list for some executive who was told to go build a, mm -hmm. build a product? Now, that's not a popular thing to say because. If you're a product development firm, fine, pay me and I'll go and build whatever you want. But I think there's like a level of wanting to create excellent body of work and the more successful clients are, the more successful you are. And so I was always very focused on like, what does success look like and how do I work backwards and engineer myself into building that, mm -hmm. that successful, you know, catalyst. Okay. But yeah, so you would, but you would argue that Blurt was, I mean, that was a fairly good, fairly good school of, uh, of entrepreneurship, right? That the, building that thing, especially at that time. Oh yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have an MBA and I've, I had, I mean, it's a kind of like chicken or the egg 
problem because there's so many skills that I feel like I gained through my MBA that allowed me to do Blurt. But at the same time, I feel like Blurt was just a masterclass in Mm -hmm. how to launch an idea and, you know, what to do from, from everything, from customer development, marketing, fundraising. I mean, I did it all. So, so to be successful, you have to go to Harvard, create, no. <laughs> create, create a company that's, that's way ahead of its time. Uh, I don't and, know if that's success. And have, it, like... have, it, have it completely fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, I think, uh, honestly, like, I mean, I know you're, you're Polish, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that I feel like our family, you know, like the family values are, you know, because of how we were raised and what our parents had to go through, um, you know, politically, like there was a little bit of like recklessness on my part in the sense of like, Hey, I'm going to hail Mary this thing. And if I fail, Mm -hmm. I don't care. Like I'm going to go big, like go big or go home kind of, you know, mindset. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I, whatever I'm going through is nothing compared to what my parents had to go through Mm -hmm. or my grandparents. So I can, I can do stupid things and fail and be okay with it because it's, it's just part of life, you know, but I I can do it. I, you know, I want to share it is from a place of privilege that I can say that because if I didn't have the safety net, my parents always told me, they're like, you always have a, a roof. You will always have a roof over your head food on the table and clothes. Mm -hmm. And that was the promise that they made to me. So I had the safety net to fail. There are are the entrepreneurs that like max out their credit cards and, you know, are living under a bridge or having, you know, I mean, I did sleep on people's couches. My friends were very nice to me and, and let me sleep on their couch. But, you know, that to me is like real courage. Like, I, I feel like I, I was like courageous, but it was nice to know that I was not going to be hungry mm-hmm. and I probably could have afforded to skip a few meals back then too. <laughs> <laughs> would, uh, would, what would you recommend for a, somebody who's just starting out on that entrepreneurial journey? What, what, what should they watch out for? Uh, just as sort of like a final, final note. Sure. I mean, I think that love the idea that you are working on and make sure that it solves the problem, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a problem. It could also be a vitamin, you know, um, just understand your market. Like do not get out. And, and if you don't know how to do it, hire someone, you know, I, I have this new belief that we're going to see more fractional FTEs, you know, companies are not going to need to hire a full-time executive to do something. So mm-hmm. like hire an executive who's already done it. And then be like you, I need you to do 20 customer interviews and tell me like, is, does this idea work? And while designers typically do that kind of work, the designer is doing it more from the UI UX perspective. And that's amazing. You need that. Absolutely. You need the mindset of the business person of like, is this a business model that is viable? And are they using this product in a way that's going to drive growth? And then that's where somebody like me would come in and be like, yes, it does or no, it doesn't. So, Mm -hmm. All right. Very cool. All right, Jeanette, thank you for joining us. This has been uh, super helpful. Yes. It's like a a crash course and crash course and failure and uh, and surviving. Yes. Thank you for having me. This has been Keep Going. I'm John Biggs. We will see you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Keep Going. 
If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Life